I think that's it. Mark chapter 10 is where we are today. We started chapter 10 last week, and uh, a lot going on. Chapter 10's got some heavy stuff in it. Uh, the biggest topic, I think, well, I don't know about the biggest, but a big topic is that the religious leaders came and attempting to trap Jesus, they asked him a question about divorce, which uh, then and now, big topic, a lot of uh, opinions and all these things, but we focused on that Jesus went back to what God intended marriage to be. And a lot of times we get focused on the mess and the, the mayhem and just the craziness of, that happens in this fallen world. And uh, Jesus just takes everybody there and us that God's purpose was something greater. And that marriage was to be, is to be, a deep covenant. And that it's, it's more than a contract. It's more than an agreement. It's a covenant. And um, that it's not to be entered into lightly, and it's not to be broken easily. Um, and again, there's a lot of things. One of the things that, that comes up whenever I teach on that is people going, well, okay, you addressed a couple different issues, maybe a case of abuse or adultery, but none of my issues really felt that, and what do I do, and what about my past and, and um, my old marriage and how that all went? Here's the thing, is that the Lord has covered all of our failures, all of our mistakes by his blood, and we are to move forward today, right? And rather than, than kick ourselves and wonder, what should we have done differently? How could we have changed things? What do we do now? What we do now is we live for Jesus, and we move forward from this point, right? And, our, and the purpose of marriage is that we are to glorify Jesus through our marriage. Now, from there, Jesus also uh, makes a special point in showing the importance of kids, that kids are brought to him to be blessed. The disciples are like, yeah, get these kids out of here. Jesus is too important for this stuff. And Jesus is like, no, let them come to me. And he, he makes a point of, of saying that the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. Now, in the second half, we've already seen this, but it's, it's getting more and more intense. The tension is mounting as Jesus is now on his approach, his final trip to Jerusalem. And he's trying to tell the disciples the things that are coming. And though he's very blunt about it, it, it still just goes right over their heads. They're, they're not understanding all that is taking place here. Uh, and I, I think there's an interesting contrast that we see. We're going to see the disciples, some of it's sinking in. But there's still this kind of striving that's happening within the disciples, right? We've seen it a couple times already, which of them is the greatest. And who's going to be, you know, Jesus' right-hand man is really the argument. Uh, and that's still going on. So for, there's actually a couple contrasts. So on, on one hand, you've got Jesus going, guys, we're going to Jerusalem, and I'm going to give my life. I'm going to die and then rise again. And, and then you've got that side, and then you've got the disciples still talking about who's the greatest. And I think compared to the disciples, we get this great other contrast of a blind beggar and his simple faith today. And uh, to me, it's kind of put stuff kind of back in line in the right priority. So let's pray, and we will get in to the rest of the chapter. Lord God, we thank you just for your love and your patience with us, that you uh, continue to come after us, even though we get distracted by uh, this life and this world. 
Lord, you continue to uh, pursue us. And, and today we want to meet you here. We want you to speak to our hearts, to our lives. We want to be changed by you. Holy Spirit, we just again give you permission. Have your way in us. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 All right. Um, let me find my spot here. Okay. We're going to be starting in verse 32 of chapter 10. It says, Now they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was going before them. And they were amazed. And as they followed, they were afraid. And then he took the twelve aside again and began to tell them the things that would happen to him. Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes. And they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles. And they will mock him, scourge him, spit on him, and kill him. And on the third day, he will rise again. Now again, with each time that Jesus uh, informs the disciples about these things, he brings in a little more detail. And, and so he's continuing to expand on it. But it does sound a little bit odd. You know, in verse 30, 32, it sounds almost like things are being left out. It says that Jesus was going before them, speaking of the disciples, that they were amazed. And then right after that, it says they followed and were afraid. And, and it's, it's kind of this like, are we missing something there? What, what's happening? Well, Mark is describing kind of the overall sense that the disciples have at this point. Uh, there's so much they don't understand. But they do get that things are getting more intense. Simply, if for no other reason, Jesus is getting more intense in his description of the things that are coming, right? And so as they're following Jesus, part of them, they're just amazed, right? And again, uh, you have to think of some of the things that have already happened. They've seen Jesus heal. They've seen Jesus rise or raise other people from the dead. And three of them were just on the mountaintop not too long ago and saw him transfigured. And standing there was Moses and Elijah with them. So there's all these things. I mean, they're really not getting all of it, but what they get is, is a lot. It, it's very intense. And I think this is starting to sink in. So verse 32 says that they were amazed. They're amazed at what they understand of Jesus. They're amazed at, I believe, his focus and his bravery at this point. And I, this is, again, my conjecture but as you read through all of the Gospels, there are certain points where Jesus just becomes more focused at, at certain things, right? So at first, it's, it's ministering to people. It's, it's showing the character of God, which is he, he does the entire time. But when he makes this turn, and that's how I've always seen it. He's been out. He's been up in Galilee, and he makes this last trip to Jerusalem. There's an absolute focus towards the cross. And so there's less teaching publicly there's less ministering to large groups of people and he's very focused on what's about to take place in jerusalem i think that intensity in itself caused them to be amazed but it also caused them to be afraid because jesus has had several big clashes with religious leaders and to be on their bad side was really bad right that they could throw anyone they wanted under the bus at any time, which is exactly what they will end up doing with Jesus. But to have Jesus arrested as a criminal makes them all criminals. They are his followers. They're not just on the peripheral. They're not just people tagging along. 
to be his disciple was to be his closest and nearest friend, right? So if Jesus becomes a criminal or is arrested as a criminal, so are they. And so would their families be if it was Rome that got involved, right? So it's a huge deal. And so that is why we see them amazed and we see them afraid, but yet they still go on because so much of it they don't understand. And again, Jesus gives them more details. And I think this is why, because this is their fear, again, he pulls them to the side and says, guys, you got to understand this is what I've come to do. We are going up to Jerusalem, and this is what's going to happen. Again, it's not the first time he's told them, but it is the, where he begins to give more detail. He's already said that the religious leaders, the scribes, the Pharisees would be the ones that he would be betrayed to, and that's an important part, that he wouldn't just be arrested by them, that it would be somebody close to Jesus betraying him over to those guys. That they, they will be the ones to arrest. They will be the ones actually to give him the sentence of death. But the detail he brings in here is, is that it will be Rome to carry that sentence out. Now again, we go, well, yeah, that all makes sense. It lines up. But you have to understand how rare it was for Israel, the religious leaders of Israel, to do anything in conjunction with the Romans. It didn't happen. And so Jesus is saying this is going to end up being a partnership. That the religious leaders will be will arrest him, condemn him, and Rome will be the one to kill him. But again, he gives them hope. On the third day, he will rise from the dead. Um, and I know for myself, you know, <laughs> you read Jesus just like, guys, and I almost picture him like grabbing their face. Look, this is what's going to happen. And they're like, huh? You know, <laughs> they just, it seems to fly over their heads. And I know that I can be kind of hard on the disciples. Like, how did they not get it? But if we put ourselves in their place, uh, we wouldn't have got it either, right? Jesus is talking about physically dying and rising from the dead. And there were so many times that he taught by parable and through illustration that it would be hard not to think he's doing it again, that there's something here we're not understanding. There's something we don't really get about. He's not speaking of death in a way we understand. And so I don't think we would, any of us would have understood it either. We would have been just as lost and confused as them. Um, well, verse 35, we go on. Verse 35 says, And then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us that we may sit one on your right and the other on your left in your glory. And Jesus said to them, you do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? And they said to him, we are. And so Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink the cup that I will drink. And with the baptism I am baptized with, you also will be baptized. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it is for those whom it has been, been it has it is prepared. And when the ten heard it, 
They were greatly displeased with James and John. But Jesus called them to himself and said to them, You know those who rule, excuse me, you know those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles and lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you. Whoever desires to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever of you desires to be first shall be the slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. While the disciples are amazed and they follow in fear, they are still striving to be important. So there's this awe of Jesus, there's an awe of what he's doing, and again, most of it they do not get, but they are still wanting to be the second in command. And so James and John uh, come up with this thing to go to Jesus, and verse 35 cracks me up every time I read it. Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. (laughs) It's so funny. It's like little children coming to the parents going, okay, I got something I want to ask you but I need you to say yes before I ask. And of course, we know. We go, uh, no. <laughs> Whatever you're going to ask, we're going to start with no. Because if you have to start it like that, I, I don't trust you at all. And so James and John do that exact same thing. Um, now, what's funny uh, or interesting, Mark leaves this out. And I think that Mark left it out just because it's like, uh, it's too embarrassing. It's too cringy. I just can't. But Matthew's like, I can, and he, he puts in the fact that it was their mother that came up with this whole idea, or that they used their mother to go ask. We're not quite sure, right? Which would be even worse. It's like, we've got this great idea, Mom, but we need your help. Could you go ask Jesus for us? And again, you're just like, oh, guys, I'm so sorry you did that. But um, they have in mind an earthly kingdom believing that Jesus is going to establish a kingdom on earth, which most people in Israel believe just that, that the Messiah would come, he would overthrow Rome, and establish Israel as the ruling nation of the world. And so, again, the disciples are going, well, when you do that, Jesus, who's going to be the second in command? And in this case, they're like, who's second and third? And I like that they give Jesus the option, right? hey, whichever one of us you want, on your left or on your right, I choose the right, but it's up to you. (laughs) That's all we want, just that little thing. They're asking for the most powerful positions under the king. That's what they're asking for, right? Grant to us that we may sit on your right and the other on your left in your glory. Now, when we think of it, of course, we go, well, in your glory, in in heaven, right? In in Jesus Christ, in his glory, the throne room of God. We picture the scenes that are painted for us there in the book of Revelation. Um, That's not what they were thinking. Again, they're thinking of like when you come into your power was the idea. That when you're ruling the world, when you establish an earthly kingdom, um, we want to be right there with you. and again, these are, these are the same types of things that people are asking for today. These are the same kinds of power, and this is how the world does things.
And I, I think it paints such a great picture for us. Actually, this scenario with James and John, and then what we're going to see with Bartimaeus, I believe that they give us some great insights about prayer. Because here, James and John come to Jesus, and they're like, we have a great idea. It's good for you. It's good for us, right? And they don't see anything wrong with this. How could this possibly be bad? And Jesus' response is, you don't know what you're asking. And I think, I know for myself, there's been plenty of times where I've approached the Lord with that same attitude of, you should just give me whatever I ask before I ask it. <laughs> and, and when I do ask it, again, I'm like, this is, this is good. This is the best situation. This is what they need. This is what I need. All the way around. And the Lord's response is, you don't even know what you're asking. Now, looking back, those have been some of the hardest answers I've gotten because I was so sure it was the right thing for God to do. But now looking back, I'm so grateful he said no. And while, I, while it's great to hear yes and it's great to see God answer prayers in a positive way, in the long run looking back, I'm more thankful for the no's. I don't know what I was asking. I don't know how much damage I would have done. I don't know whose lives I would have affected in a horribly negative way if he gave me whatever I wanted before I asked it. Right? And so he tells the boys, guys, you don't even know what you're, what you're talking about. And to them, they're, they're like, yeah, sure, we, we got it. You know, I'm sure there's going to be some hard work. I'm sure there's going to be some more responsibility. We're, we'll take that on. You, you want us to boss the other 10 around? We'll do that. They can work for us. We're fine, right? And Jesus asked them, can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? Can you be baptized with the baptism I will be baptized with? And they're like, yeah. Again, they have no idea, do they? Who was on his right and his left when Jesus did his greatest work? When he entered into his glory. Two thieves who were crucified on either side of him. We don't know if James was there, but we know John was there. And I've always wondered, I'll ask him, we can ask him when we get to heaven, if he remembered this scene when he stood there at the crucifixion. Seeing who was on Jesus' right and on his left. And hearing Jesus say, you don't even know what you're asking. Now, again, they don't know, and Jesus asks if they're able to drink from the cup and be baptized. They say we are. Um, and again, they just thought that meant more hard work, more responsibility, whatever that might be. And Jesus tells them, you will. Now, again, that would have been chilling when you realized, first of all, what they asked, how it was fulfilled, and then to remember he said, and you will be baptized with that, and you will drink that cup. James would be the first disciple martyred in Acts chapter 12. And it is the most random, to me, it's one of the most heartbreaking things because here James is one of the guys, right? Not just one of the disciples. He's one of the three. He's one of the, Peter, James, and John, 
they do everything together. Jesus takes them everywhere, up to the Mount of Transfiguration, places to where he's going to heal people that the other disciples didn't go. And in Acts chapter 12, the church is just barely getting rolling. I mean, people have just started getting saved, and, and all of a sudden, James gets murdered by Herod. And it just seems like the most, like, what? I mean, sh- couldn't it have been one of the other guys? We barely even know their names, right? Bartholomew, you know? <laughs> Bart, you know? But instead, it's James. He was the first disciple martyred. John would be the last to die, the final witness after receiving the revelation there on Patmos. They would face persecution and finally their death and be a witness of the Lord the entire time. Now, the other guys here that James and John have asked this question or sent uh, their mom to ask it. <laughs> And they're like, what? My mom's not even here. That's not fair. I couldn't ask that. Or they just didn't think of it in time. And I I really think that's it, right? It's not that they're like, how dare you boys? It was more like, why didn't I think of that? Why didn't I ask for that place? Um, Whatever it was, they're upset. And again, Jesus doesn't take this opportunity to belittle them for wanting to be great. He doesn't say, you know what, guys? You're completely wrong. You're thinking of this only in a worldly sense, and I'm ashamed of you. You know, you need to have a, a more godly... He d- doesn't do any of that. Instead, he's like, you guys want to be great? Let me tell you how. And so he, he instructs them on what real greatness looks like and how to achieve it. In verse 42, it says, You know those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles. Lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. In a way, Jesus is just saying, guys, you know how the world works. You know how people in the world are. They strive for authority, and once they get it, they lord it over whoever's below them. Nothing's changed. The heart of man is unchanged. It is still the same, whether we're talking about politics or whether we're talking about the workplace. The heart of man is, first of all, striving to get it. And it's always been funny to me because we love the underdog story, don't we? The one that that comes from nothing, works their way up the chain until finally they are in power or in authority, running a company, CEO, whatever it might be. And we would hope that that person gets to the top and goes, you know what? I remember what it was like to be the little guy. I have compassion on those who are under my authority. But for the most part, they do not. They rule it over them. They lord it over them. And Jesus doesn't tell them this to then say, and, and, and this is how we change the world and how the world does things. We're going to change their whole direction. He's not saying that at all. He's saying, look, this is what you see in the world. And there's the connection of, and guys, you are acting that way. Unfortunately, while we all have seen it in the world, we've also all seen it within the church, you know, whether it's a pastor or a leader or a pope, priest, whatever, that they get in that place of authority, and rather than doing it from a humble place, they do it to lord over others. Jesus says very clearly, it shall not be so among you. That is not how we are to be. 
Now, again, he's not saying there's not a chain of command or leadership. There has to be leadership in any group in order for it to be successful and accomplish things. But it is not about who's better or who's least or who's more, you know, loved by God and who's least loved by God. It's none of those things. That is the world's way of doing it. Yet it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to become great among you shall be your servant. Again, even though we know those words and we know how what Jesus is saying there, it's a hard thing to choose to be the servant. It's much better to be the leader, right? <laughs> it's much better to be the one like, I'd rather be in charge, please. And, and, but it's the servant. And even better yet, it's the leader who understands servanthood. One of my favorite things, you know, I like doing short-term missions, and we've done different stuff, and, and we were in uh, Haiti, and we were doing this big agricultural project, and uh, there's this whole thing that uh, they always want to find out who the big boss is. So the, we've been working with the, the Haitian people, and great, just lovely people, and had such a good time, but when new workers would come in, they're like, well, who's the big boss? Well, the big boss was always the guy that was like standing in the shade, just watching. And, and they just go, that's the big boss. And so me and some other guys, we're like down in this ditch, and we're digging this trench, and we're digging away, and a and, uh, guy comes over and goes, well, well, you know, who's the big boss here? And, uh, and we're like, oh, well, he's kind of in charge of the whole project. And they're like, is he the pastor? I, told, I was told that the pastor's here. Pastor's the big boss. He's the guy in charge. And I go, no, that's me. <laughs> and I was just like all covered with dirt. And they're like, What? <laughs> <laughs> and, he, and the guy gets this big smile, and he's just like, all right, jumps down in the ditch and starts digging with us. And there's something about seeing the love of Jesus that he has not come to be served. If anyone was worthy, if anyone deserves to be served in absolutely every way, it's him. Yet he came to serve. He came to give his life a ransom for many. That's like, that's the far beyond the next level, right? It isn't just serving like, hey, you need something and I'll help you out. It isn't just you're sick and, and I'll speak the word and heal you. It's I'm going to pay for all of your sins and it will cost me my life to pay the ransom of many. There's no better example of service and leadership together than Jesus Christ himself. And knowing how he has served us should change the way we serve one another, right? Verse 46 goes on. It says, now they came to Jericho. And as they went out of Jericho with his disciples and a great multitude, blind Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, sat by the road begging. And when they heard, excuse me, and when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began, began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And then many warned him to be quiet. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. So Jesus stood still and commanded him to be called. And then they called the blind man saying to him, 
Be of good cheer. Rise. He is calling you. And throwing aside his garment, he rose and came to Jesus. And Jesus answered and said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said, Rabboni, that I would receive my sight. And then Jesus said to him, Go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus on the road. Again, I think there's a great contrast here in a, both the disciples and what they're asking and what Bartimaeus is asking are, are such great pictures of what prayer looks like in a negative way and in a right way, right? The disciples, yeah, they had all these things going as far as, you know, being in awe of Jesus and, and, and considering who he is and but they were still striving to be somebody. Mark brings the story or the, the name of Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus. And it's interesting that Mark gives us his proper name because it probably means he was still known to the church. In other words, this wasn't just some random guy that no one ever heard from again. The reason Mark went, that was Bartimaeus, son of Timaeus. You guys all know him. And that's why he's brought in here, uh, mentioned specifically. And so, uh, again, I love the fact that he's just so unashamed at his need for Jesus. That he hears that Jesus is coming, uh, walking out of the town, and he just starts shouting. People tell him to shut up. He just shouts out all the more. And it's also interesting to me, you know, again, there's no reason that Bartimaeus would have missed this opportunity. But if he had, if he had just went, you know what, I'll catch Jesus next time he comes through. I don't want to bother him right now. I'll do it later. He would have missed his opportunity. This is the last time Jesus will ever walk these streets. It had to be right now. It had to happen that day. And so the first part that, again, I think is a great picture of prayer is that there's no reason to wait until later. There's no reason to delay Oh, yeah, yeah, I'll pray about that later. I'll, I'll, I'll wait until tomorrow morning's devotion, and I'll, I'll make a note of that, and then we don't make a note of it, and we forget all about it, and we never pray about it, right? Get distracted, get on Facebook, get on our email. Oh, I, di I didn't even have my devotions today. And off the day goes, right? There's no reason to delay, man. Pray right then. Something comes to you, make it just part of a conversation with the Lord that just is ongoing throughout your day. Don't wait for a special opportunity. Um, and again, it's, it's so cool. He just continues to cry out. Uh, the, the crowd tells him to be quiet, and he gets even louder. A lot of people say, well, Bartimaeus is a great example of that kind of ask, seek, knock mentality. And I think there's some validity in that. Uh, I think the danger is, is that sometimes when we think about that, that we get this idea that not only are we supposed to ask, seek, knock, we're supposed to nag God. That we're just supposed to just keep hitting him with it over and over again as though we need to wear him down. Though, like we need to somehow work our way around his reluctance to answer. And if we just keep asking again and again and again, at some point he's going to go, fine, right? That's not the heart of the Lord. And I think if we, if we get, let our mind go there, we've missed the whole point. Yes, we are to ask, seek, and knock, and I think we're to be consistent in prayer. But the point isn't to wear God down. The point of it is to remind us us that every time we start to worry about something to just pray about it 
that if it's still a burden on me, then I just need to continue to take that to the Lord. He hasn't forgotten, but I've forgotten that I've taken it to him, obviously, because it's still weighing me down, right? So that's the ask, seek, knock mentality. And I think Bartimaeus is, is really a great picture, not about trying to, you know, pray, 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 pray and wear God down. It's about not being discouraged by the response of others. That when I'm praying and I tell other people, man, I'm praying about this. I don't know what the Lord's going to do, but I'm seeking God. What, it doesn't really matter how they respond. And if they're like this and they're like, just shut up. Quit bothering them about it. You know, it's not going to work. He's not going to answer. I'm going to cry out all the more. You cannot detour me from my prayer and seeking my God. There's, you can't do it. And Bartimaeus is the great picture of that. To cry out all the more, no matter what anyone else says. I think there's great humility in, in what he, how he approaches, especially in comparison to the disciples, right? These, the two disciples show up and they're like, oh, give us whatever we ask before we ask it. I don't want to tell you what it is, just say yes, right? Bartimaeus shows such great humility. He doesn't approach the Lord as though he owes Bartimaeus anything. He's not going to him saying, you know, well, if you're so good, then why don't you answer? And why did you walk by me? And I was back there when I, you walked by, and why didn't you even notice me? None of that. Absolute humility, and he knows what he needs more than anything else. Because the first thing he cries out for is mercy. Have mercy on me. He then gets into the specifics. And I think, again, there's two sides to our, our, two parts of our prayer life, right? So one is on the very kind of general, big picture stuff. It's crying out for mercy, blessing, protection, right? Those are big things. And I think it's valid for us to pray those prayers. I don't think they're generic. I don't think they're weak. It's important. But I do think it's important that we don't stay there. Because we need those big things. We need to ask for protection and blessing and, and direction and those things. But if we stay with the generic big picture stuff, then we miss the details when they come along. Right? And, and the detail, though it seems very obvious for, for Bartimaeus that he needs his sight, it's important that he understands what it is that he needs. Now, Jesus says, hey, bring him over here. And, and one of the great things, very subtle in verse 50, it says, throwing aside his garment, he rose and came to Jesus. Um, the garment, especially in the Hebrew culture, it was your identity. Whether you were a priest or a beggar, that what you wore is who you are. And so for him to stand up and throw his garments aside, it was like leaving his old life. Jesus has called me. I have no need to return. Right? It's a beautiful thing. And so he goes to Jesus, and, and Jesus asks him, what, what is it you want? And it's almost humorous because it's like, <laughs> well, he's not going to ask for money. I mean, he's blind. What do you think he wants? Right? But I like that Jesus is like, I want you to ask specifically. Right? It's, it's not that Jesus is like, you've got to ask the right way, and then I'll answer. That's not it. I want you to ask specifically. Why? Because, again, when, if we ask for big things, we're only going to see big things. Yes, God protected me. Yes, God blessed me overall. But when we get specific and we're like, Lord, I need this situation dealt with. I need to have wisdom in this relationship. 
I don't know what to do. This is what I want to do, but this is what, I don't understand what you want me to do, right? And so we get, the more we have this conversation and we wrestle with the Lord about these things and more details come out, then you know what? When we see his answers, we're like, those are the answers I've been looking for. But if we're not, if we're not looking for the details, if we're not asking for the details, we won't be looking for them to come along. And so Bartimaeus, again, it's a pretty obvious thing. He says, I want or that I might receive my sight. Now, another thing that I see here with Bartimaeus, again, there's this humility, and he's crying out. He doesn't care what other people think. And though these all are very obvious things, and we're like, hey, great, good for Bartimaeus. How often we miss these things? How often is it that we are so concerned with what other people will think? It keeps us even from seeking things in prayer. Or if you want to make it a bigger thing than that, how often is it that people are so concerned with what others will think that they don't even give their lives to Jesus? Right? I, I, what, what would my family think if I, suddenly I was a, a Christian? Oh, my goodness. What if the people that I grew up with and I partied with and we caused all that trouble with and they found out that now I gave my life to Jesus, what are they going to think? Who cares? Right? On the day that we're standing before the Lord, who cares? But how often does it keep people from entering the kingdom? Right? Even for us as believers, how often does it keep us from asking for specifics because we're afraid of the outcome or we're afraid that somebody will, will see it as a, an opportunity to mock or whatever? Man, again, great picture in Bartimaeus here. Now, Jesus tells in verse 52, Go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus on the road. Um, I think it's important to point out when Jesus says, your faith has made you well. Uh, there's a lot of really bad teaching when it comes to faith out there. That, that a lot of people will treat faith as though it's an emotion to work up. That if you just, man, just no room for, it, for doubt, no room for anything, you've got to work it up, you've got to believe, 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 believe. And if you reach the, enough percentage of faith, then God is obligated to answer. That is wrong. So when Jesus says, your faith has made you well, what is it? Well, it's not a type of faith. It's not a strength of faith. It is because of whom he has placed his faith in. He has gone to the only one able to give mercy. He has gone to the only one able to give life. And that faith is all that's required. Right? This isn't something to be worked up. It isn't something to, we got to hit a certain level for God to respond. It is simply by going to Jesus and praying in his name. That is the only faith required. And again, we see that there's an understanding here. Bartimaeus calls him the son of David, which is a reference to him being the Messiah. And also the source of mercy. He calls him Rabboni, which is teacher. And it's a very kind of intimate way of saying teacher, right? While the others are desperately striving to be somebody, Bartimaeus recognizes the only thing he needs is Jesus. Jesus is his only hope. He casts aside his, his old life to seek Jesus with everything. I love it. 
And again, I'm challenged by it. Because too often we can be more like the disciples. Lord, I need this. Lord, I need that. I need to have these things. And I don't think there's anything wrong with praying about stuff we want or stuff we'd like to do. I think that that's honest. That's part of a real relationship with the Lord. But I think we do need to understand that above it all, what we need is mercy. And where we go from there is seeing how he wants to meet us right where we're at. To heal our blindness. To take away our arrogance or our attitude to change us. He's the one that has the answers. He's the one that has healing. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you that you want to work in our lives. God, that you want to change us. You want to use us. And, and Lord, we pray that we could have a simple, honest faith like Bartimaeus to just call out to you over and over again for mercy, to call out to you for healing. And that, uh, Lord, even though you might say, go your way, Lord, that we would be the ones following you on the road right behind you and that you would have your way in us. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.